ultimately I'd love to create a scientific community where you can come and you can say, I feel this way and not have anyone say you're overreacting. Hi, I'm Willow Belden, and you're listening to Out There, the podcast that explores big questions through intimate stories outdoors. The person you just heard is Jasmine Graham. She's the founder of a group called Minorities in Shark Science. Our interview with her was done for a new series that we're rolling out. Later in this episode, I'm going to give you a sneak peek into that series. I'm really excited about it, and I think you will be too. But first, we've gained a lot of new listeners over the past few years, and I'd love to take a moment to welcome you all. I'm so glad you're here. As a special treat, between now and the end of the year, we are planning to run an episode each week instead of every two weeks. Some of those episodes will be old favorites from the early days of Out There. If you're new to the show, you may never have heard these stories. And if you've been listening since the beginning, we hope that hearing some of our timeless classics will put a smile on your face. The story you're going to hear today is the first story we ever aired on Out There. It's also one that's gotten a lot of praise from listeners. It's a story about a man who spent years living with a herd of deer. He's a biologist, and he felt that the best way to understand the animals he was studying was to essentially become one of them. This is the story of how he did that. It's a story of love, of curiosity, and ultimately of sadness. And it's a story about what happens when the line between fact and feeling becomes blurred. Joe Hutto lives on a modest ranch in central Wyoming. The rolling hills around the house are covered with sagebrush, and fruit trees are scattered about the yard. Just beyond are the majestic Wind River Mountains. As I drove up the long dirt driveway, I immediately knew I was in the right place. There were deer everywhere. Not the type of deer you might have seen growing up in, say, Pennsylvania. The deer here were mule deer, which are common in the Rockies. They're kind of like the jackrabbits of deer. Picture a brawnier version of Bambi, with donkey-like ears and a round white butt. When I arrived at the ranch, Joe was out in the front yard. He was 60-something, dressed in blue jeans and a simple western shirt, and his kind-looking face was weathered from years spent outdoors. A young deer was standing next to him, and as I walked over, Joe reached out and touched her. Rather than darting away, like you've seen deer do a million times, she let him pat her on the side of the neck. Didn't even flinch. She's just like a big pet. Yeah, except they're not pets. After I followed Joe inside, another deer climbed the steps onto the porch and peered in at us through the glass door. Look at the nose prints all over the, <laughs> the glass. Joe tells me he's known this particular deer ever since she was a little fawn. It was real interesting. She got attacked by a mountain lion when she was about six months old. And she was absolutely torn to shreds. I could literally see her skull. And uh, her personality completely changed. She uh, 
just immediately developed this look of worry on her face. You could see it in her eyes and the way she carried her ears. And she's never gotten over that. You know, she just doesn't trust the world anymore. Joe is a trained wildlife researcher, but he was not always a deer whisperer. Growing up, he'd actually been a hunter. But after he and his wife Leslie moved to their ranch about a decade ago, things changed. The house was in the middle of prime mule deer habitat, and it turns out the animals were pretty curious about the new humans who had arrived. There was a, a doe, an older doe that Leslie named Ramy. It's in doe, Ramy. It's embarrassing. <laughs> but anyway, she came to be known as Ramy, and Ramy had this peculiar habit of staring in our windows at night. We would be in the well-lit house inside, it would be dark outside, and suddenly we would observe that there was a mule deer face in the window watching us. Joe and Leslie came to adore Ramy, and Ramy started hanging around more and more of the time. You'd just walk out and say, Ramy, and she'd just appear out of nowhere. He was really cute. Joe was fascinated by Ramy, and he wanted to know more. He wanted to get to know the herd and understand what made them tick, not just as deer, but as individuals. And so he did something that few scientists ever do. He decided to embed himself in the herd. He knew this was a pretty strange way to conduct research. No statistics, no lab work, no charts and tables. But that was the point. Quantitative data wouldn't give him the kind of insight he wanted. I would equate that with uh, aerial photography, where you fly over a civilization and you see settlement patterns and you see areas of uh, specific activity, you see roads. But you don't get any close-ups. You can't see the range of people that make up that civilization. Can't get to know their personalities, their quirks, their differences. And that's what Joe wanted from the mule deer. He wanted to watch them play and eat and raise their young. Wanted to see how they reacted to danger and trauma. And to do that, he decided he needed to live with them. You have to understand that Joe had done similar things before. He'd embedded himself with ducks, and he'd lived with wild turkeys and bighorn sheep. He was inspired by people like Jane Goodall, the famous researcher who lived with chimpanzees in Africa. Like her, he worked hard to win the trust of the animals he was studying, and then spent countless hours observing the intimate details of their lives. He wrote books about several of the projects and used the money he earned from the books to fund future wildlife endeavors, like this mule deer project. Okay, so reality check. Becoming part of a herd of wild animals is not easy. You can't force yourself on them. You have to wait for them to come to you. But Joe already had an in with the mule deer. The doe named Ramy, the one who stared in at his windows at night, was already pretty comfortable around him. And as time went on, she came to trust him even more. One morning, he was standing in the yard, and she approached him, walked right up to him, in fact. And I reached out, and I was surprised that she didn't back off from it. In fact, she sort of went towards my hand. And I, I started gently scratching Remy on the back of the ear and the side of her neck, and clearly, she enjoyed being touched. In case you've never spent any time around deer, this is not normal. Mule deer, just like any other deer, are pretty freaked out by people. After all, we hunt them. 
so if you come too close, they tend to bolt. But once Raimi warmed up to Joe, the other deer in the herd followed suit. Eventually, Joe started following them into the hills behind his house, and they were okay with that. They went about their business almost as if he wasn't there. It was a strange thing, but they were treating him like a fellow deer. And Joe played the part, day in and day out. Many days, uh, I can spend 14 hours. I'll be out before daylight, and I'll come in after dark. So once you're embedded with this herd, what did a typical day look like? What did you do all day out with the deer? Well, that's a good question. I, I had a, a biologist <laughs> ask me one time, well, what do you do all day? Like maybe I would get bored to death. Well, it's amazing. And it's the fastest 14 hours uh, anyone could ever live in their life. Joe passed the time following the deer around as they grazed. He'd romp with them and lie down and take naps with them. He'd go exploring with them, because apparently mule deer are intensely curious. And of course, he took copious notes about what he observed, which would later turn into a book. One day, Joe was hanging out with a doe named Ragtag. Yes, he named her and all the other deer, too. He was down on one knee, scratching the side of Ragtag's neck, which was something she loved. And suddenly, she started returning the gesture to me. She started grooming me uh, at the same time, licking the side of my head and uh, my hair, which I had seen mule deer doing with each other hundreds of times. And I thought, oh my goodness, this little deer thinks I'm a family member. Because deer do not... Mule deer do not randomly groom one another. It is only something that occurs within the family. Joe was thrilled. And what was especially gratifying was that the deer only did this with him. If another human showed up, they acted like normal deer. They'd spook and run away. That was a very important revelation to me to know that uh, I was not habituating these deer and not making them more vulnerable to hunters, for example. Joe came up with a special sound he'd make whenever he went out on the mountain. It was a signal of sorts to let the deer know that it was okay, that it was just him. At half mile, they don't know who I am. And they can become frightened, and they will run from me at a half a mile. But if they can hear the sound, they go, oh, it's that guy. Okay, so, so what's the sound? I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> you don't get to know. <laughs> I'm not going to go steal it. <laughs> no, we're going to be broadcasting this on, on the radio, and every deer hunter on a 100-mile radius will be running around the mountain making this ridiculous noise. Needless to say, by this point, Joe had become very close with many of the deer in the herd. They'd groom him and follow him around, they responded when he called them by name, and several of the does were so trusting that they'd introduce their newborn fawns to him, which is something they would normally never do. One of those fawns was a young buck named Babe. Joe loved him immediately. He was a handful, as they say, as a, as a young deer, and uh, he was big and robust, and you know, if Babe got in a fight, he could run over me and smash me like a bug. But I knew that he would not intentionally ever harm me. He was, uh, you know, one of the most gentle, uh, affectionate animals you would ever want to be around. 
As Babe grew up, he developed a behavior that probably would have seemed terrifying to most of us. He would come up behind me, and I would feel um, this almost gentle touch on my back, like somebody touching you, tapping you with their finger. And I would turn around, and it would be Babe, and he would have his antlers against my back. Now, you have to understand that this is something bucks do. Two bucks of different status will come together, and one buck will invite the other to spar with him. And they will put their antlers together, and they will start pushing each other back and forth. Very gently, actually. And a lot of people see this, and they mistakenly think they're seeing a deer fight. But it's not. It's almost affection, and it's brotherly bonding. So Babe would do this to Joe, would ask him to spar with him. Which, of course, I can't do. I don't have a set of antlers. And I could almost sense his disappointment, and you know, he, he wouldn't understand why I wasn't doing this. And so sometimes I would literally grab hold of his antlers with both hands and just kind of give him a shake and push, him, push, push against him a little bit, and he would enjoy that very much. Joe felt honored that the deer had accepted him. He was getting what he wanted, a close-up view into their lives. But he was also becoming attached to them, very attached. It was October of 2011, and Joe was cleaning out his horse corrals one evening when he heard two shots ring out. And of course, I had no idea what had happened. I just heard two shots. It was hunting season. That happens all the time. But that night, Babe didn't show up. Joe instantly had a bad feeling. Babe always came around in the evenings. The next morning, Joe walked up onto a hill to try to see what happened. And I saw three guys dragging a deer about a mile and a half away. And uh, so they had killed the deer and then come back the following morning because it was dark to drag him out. Joe started running across the mountainside toward the hunters. I stopped about a quarter of a mile away and, and looked. And at a quarter of a mile... I recognized uh, Babe's antlers. I knew it was him. And then I continued running, and, you know, there he was. And uh, it was very, very difficult. Did you tell them that you knew this deer? I sure did. Uh, I said that they had trespassed, that this land had been shut down uh, from all hunting for two years, and that his name was Babe, and that I had known him since he was a spotted fawn. And they said, oh, he was, did you know he was blind in one eye? And I said, of course I knew. I said, I was there when he got in the fight, when he lost his eye. I know exactly when he was blinded. So, yeah, and that, I guess that made it even more difficult. You know, it's like, uh, uh, you know, coming up on your friend who'd been killed and then having to describe to somebody who he was and that he was, in fact, a who and not just a dead thing. Babe's death hit Joe really hard. It was almost like he'd lost a sibling. He needed time to grieve and to heal, 
and at the same time, he needed to make sense out of his conflicted feelings. All of a sudden, he found himself struggling with deep ethical questions. Joe had been a hunter all his life. Hunting deer for sport is popular all around the country, and especially in the West, venison is a staple on many dinner tables. Plus, as a biologist, Joe understood that hunting is an important wildlife management tool, a way to keep the population under control. But now, killing a mule deer seemed unfathomable to him. And, and this is just entirely personal. You know, it has nothing to do with my attitude about the rightness or wrongness or the appropriate, appropriateness of hunting, which, I, like I say, I don't, I don't object to at all. But just personally, my perspective has caused me to grow really tired of death. If that, I guess that sounds very strange. But at this point in my life, you know, if I could keep a deer alive, I would, rather than killing it. Over the years, Joe watched many of the deer in his herd die. It wasn't always hunters that got them. Deer are wild animals, after all, and there are a lot of predators that go after them. Mountain lions, wolves, bears. That's just part of nature. But almost without exception, these mule deer died horrible, violent deaths. And the survivors took it pretty hard. When Ragtag gave birth to twins and one of them died, she didn't leave the side of the dead fawn for days. I was killed by a mountain lion. And she was so concerned that she didn't, she wasn't eating right. And uh, just sort of uh, exhausting herself. Almost like how a human mother might react if she lost her child. Two weeks later, Ragtag, the mother deer, died. Her one surviving fawn was crushed and bewildered. She just ran all over this mountain for days calling for her mother, and it was an incredibly difficult thing to watch. Joe watched this happen over and over. Eventually, he decided he couldn't take it anymore, couldn't stand bonding with these deer only to lose them. So he decided it was time to stop, time to leave the herd. He no longer spends all day with the deer, and when new fawns are born, he doesn't name them. But just like he couldn't join the herd without permission from the deer, he's finding it's tough to leave without their approval. I can't walk out of my own house without some deer walking out of the trees somewhere, you know, and, and walking up to me and saying, okay, are we heading out now? Is it, you know, is it time to go up on the mountain? So, yeah, it's really hard to give it up. We often assume that scientists are not supposed to fall in love with their research subjects. They're supposed to remain objective, to keep their feelings and emotions out of their work. Joe, of course, has done exactly the opposite, but he's not sorry. He says it was totally worth it. Anything you can do to get as close as you can possibly get to an animal is going to lend you more insight. And you don't need to, to fear affection you know, and falling in love with an animal, even. That's not going to blind you. It won't blind you, but it's still a delicate balance. On the one hand, Joe developed an understanding of his research subjects in all their complexity and richness. 
But in doing so, he broke down the natural order, the order in which humans and wild animals keep a healthy distance from each other. This close-up picture showed him all the vividness of nature's beauty, but also dragged him through its harshest brutality. If you want to hear more about Joe's story, you can read his book, which is called Touching the Wild. There's also a documentary film about it by the same name. After the break, I'm going to give you a taste of a new series that we're launching. It's a series that seeks to challenge our ideas of what the outdoors is and introduce you to people and ideas we think you're going to find fascinating. But first... Have you ever dreamed of living in a mountain town? A place where you could go skiing before work or squeeze in a moonlit hike without having to drive a long way to a trailhead? Right now is actually a really good time to turn that dream into a reality. COVID-19 has changed how the world does business and many people are working remotely. If you are too, why not move to the mountain paradise you've always dreamed of? One of our sponsors for this episode is the Tourism and Prosperity Partnership in Colorado's Gunnison Valley. They'd like you to consider relocating to their area. I first experienced the Gunnison Valley when I hiked the Colorado Trail in 2014. The following winter, I went back for a cross-country ski race in Crested Butte, which was loads of fun. We dressed up as hedgehogs for the race, but that's another story. Anyway, I can attest to the fact that the Gunnison Valley is a lovely place. It's nestled between spectacular mountain ranges, and it has over 750 miles of biking and hiking trails. It also has world-class skiing and an award-winning school system. To start living your dream, visit icelab.co. That's icelab.co. Support for Out There also comes from BetterHelp. If there's something that's interfering with your happiness or keeping you from achieving your goals, BetterHelp is there for you. They're an online counseling service serving clients all over the world. When you sign up, they'll assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can communicate with your therapist via video chat, phone, even text. It's convenient, private, and safe. BetterHelp has therapists with a wide array of expertise, some of which may not be available locally, especially in more rural areas. They have specialists in everything from stress and anxiety to eating disorders and sleep problems. For 10% off your first month of counseling, go to betterhelp.com slash out there. That's betterhelp.com slash out there. BetterHelp. Take charge of your mental health. And now, as promised, I'd like to tell you about a new series we're rolling out. It's called the Tuesday Spotlight. What we're going to be doing is highlighting people and organizations you might not otherwise hear about, but who are engaging with the outdoors in fascinating and thought-provoking ways. We'll be publishing profiles of these individuals and groups on our blog and social media, 
So if you're not already following us in one of those places, now would be a great time to do so. We're on Facebook and Instagram at Out There Podcast. The person who's spearheading the Tuesday Spotlight is Kara Schaefer. She's been doing outreach for Out There since the beginning of the summer, and she joins us now to talk about the new series. So Kara, just to start, how did you come up with the idea for this? I think that I came up with the idea because I wanted something that would let us introduce our audience to a wider range of people. There's only so many people you can have on a podcast. And there's also a lot of people who are just doing really interesting things in the outdoors out there. Stuff that may not fit as naturally on a podcast, but could work really well for a profile series. So just to give people a sneak peek, can you give us a taste of a few of the people you've interviewed already? Yeah, um, I've interviewed someone who works in zookeeping, specifically animal education. I've interviewed an artist. I've interviewed someone who broke the women's record for the fastest known time on the Colorado Trail. And also just finished interviewing our first organization, which will be Minorities in Shark Science. So I'm really excited about all the interviews. All the people had really unique takes on what they were doing in the outdoor world. What are you hoping to accomplish through these profiles? First of all, I definitely do want to expand who our audience is seeing. And second of all, I'd really like to kind of challenge the idea of what is outdoorsy. Because when we think of outdoorsy, you a lot of times get what the media kind of portrays, which is climbing a mountain and doing all the epic summits and the hardest, roughest, toughest, fastest, all that sort of thing. And I kind of want to challenge that and look at how you can spend time in the outdoors, whether it's through work, whether it's your personal life or hobbies, different ways you can spend time outdoors that might be more accessible to the everyday person, or that might just be a really unique, different way of spending time in the outdoors. So this is the first time that um, that listeners will have heard your voice on the show. Um, can you tell us a little bit about you? Yeah, I work in outdoor education. I'm currently working for a Parks Foundation in Reno, Nevada, doing different things with interpretive hiking programs and interpretive events. Um, I'm really passionate about, about spending time outdoors. And when I'm not outdoors, you can usually find me reading, baking, curling up in bed because it's turning into winter and I hate the cold, so. <laughs> Love it. Well, thank you, Kara. Thank you. Okay, so let's listen to a few snippets from some of the interviews we'll be featuring on the Profile series. We have a, a small parrot. He's an Amazon parrot. He can be, like, very grumpy. He's an older bird, but he usually is totally fine, and he'll take seeds from you nicely, and he does his behavior if you, like, shows off his wings and he'll talk for you but the other day I got him out he also is not a fan of being on people's hands he's very specific and I think right now we'll only step up on our supervisor's hands who's been working with him for years but um I stepped him up on a stick that he steps up on and I went to hand him a seed he leaned past the seed bit my finger and then leaned up and laughed at me
I, I feel like whenever there's a blizzard in New York City, it's just like... <laughs> I remember, like, this crazy snowstorm, like, walking out to the Hudson River because I'm like, I have to get this drawing done. Like, I wanted to, like, have, like, a really good winter drawing. And I remember, like, being out there and I could, like, har- you can hardly even see the horizon in New-, New Jersey. And I think my drawing was, like, one line across the paper. I'm like, okay, here's, like, the separation between sky and earth. And, like, even that line, like, kind of, like, stopped working halfway through with the pen, like, all the snow falling on it. You know, since then, I've learned that pencil works a lot better in the rain or snow. I know not every place has bathrooms, but... If it's like a state park or a nature park area that does happen to have bathrooms, that they have like an adult changing table. It's hard to change someone's depend, you know, and keep them clean and, you know, because we're drinking water, they're getting water just like us, and like we have to go, they have to go. It's a challenge to try and do that while they're in their chair. Because you can't necessarily, like, if you're out in a, you know, wooded area, you can't necessarily, like, change them on the ground if you don't have, like, like A, if you can't lift them or transfer them to the ground. Um, so it's just trying to make it more accessible. A lot of what was going on in my head and a lot of what was like really interesting to me about this experience was just like how much negative self-talk I like had going in a circle in my head just, like you should be faster than this you're stronger than this like you, you know but like not in like a like uplifting pep talk kind of way and like just like pure rage at myself um and I, I guess that was like in some senses motivating um you know it's like so mad that I just like wanted to keep going but I mean, also, that, that's, like, not really, like, the healthiest way. And I think it was, like, extremely, like, emotionally difficult for me. Like, especially towards the end, I just was, like, crying all the time because I was just, like, mad at myself and then, like, wanted to go faster. I mean, I think when I got to the end, I, like, you know, I was, like, sitting in this chair, like, eating cold pizza <laughs> and and realized that what I had done was, like, actually really like impressive and I'm like oh wow no like you did a really really hard thing I have only met one black shark scientist and he was a man and so to see another black woman shark scientist was like whoa so obviously I responded to her tweet and I was like you're a black woman and you do shark science I'm a black woman I do shark science she's like whoa who knew there are two of us and then Amani popped in and was like make that three and then we had another person make that four and we kind of jokingly were like we should form a club and so that's kind of how this all started and it really just grew and grew ultimately I'd love to create a scientific community where myths is no longer needed. 
Um, so I want every space to be like this, where you can come and you can say, I feel this way and not have anyone say you're overreacting or that's not true or whatever. Um, and then also ha- be able to look around you and see people like you. The voices you just heard were Johnny Payne, Nick Golubieski, Nicole Shortsleeves, Michaela Osler, and Jasmine Graham. We'll be launching the Tuesday Spotlight series on November 24th. Follow us on Facebook or Instagram to see the profiles. We're at Out There Podcast on both platforms. And you'll also be able to read the profiles on our blog, which is outtherepodcast.com slash blog. A big thank you to Kara Schaefer for making this series a reality. Finally, before you go, I wanted to share something with you that really brought a smile to my face. It's a review that a listener named Kimini left us on Apple Podcasts. It's about one of our recent episodes called Mr. Fabulous. Here's what it says. Quote, As an aspiring backpacker and black person of color who lives along and has informally day-hiked along the AT, I sincerely appreciate this episode. I really connect, even more these days, with media that are not afraid to talk about color and how it affects one's life, decisions, abilities, and prospects. That doesn't treat us like we're crazy or making it all up. That doesn't treat us like we're taking on the mantle of victim for convenience's sake. Yes, people actually say this. And that also doesn't victim blame. This was refreshing, and honestly, hearing you admit right up front that white described the typical hiker really took my breath away. You saying that and being up front, no BS, gave me permission and invitation to enjoy. I can't thank you enough. End quote. I would like to say thank you, Kimini, for that review. It really made my day. If you, too, have been touched by one of our episodes, we'd love for you to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Reviews help independent podcasts like Out There because they make it easier for new listeners to discover us. And if you write us a review, we might read it on air. Just saying. That's it for this episode. Our strategic advisor is Alex Eggerking. Our advertising manager is Jessica Taylor. Sheba Joseph is our audience growth director. Our interns are Anne Margaret Warner, Stephanie Maltrich, and Kara Schaefer. Our ambassadors are Ashley White, Tiffany Duong, and Stacia Bennett. And our theme music was written by Jared Arnold. We'll see you next week. <laughs>